Do we have enough room here for everybody to get in? Anyway, small auditorium. Hey, uh, I've been introduced, met many of you, some of you uh, don't know me. Call me Hirsch if you would like, not Mr. Hirsch. Uh, I'm a graduate of Penn State. I don't think our MC mentioned that, which means absolutely nothing to you, right? Who cares? Anyway, uh, but uh, got involved in crew at Penn State, and I've been on staff with crew now for 43 years, which is probably hard for you to imagine because how does a dude who looks 38, how can he be on staff that long? Well, it's true. Difficult to conceive, but yes. Hey, uh, I am delighted to be here with you Cardinals. Chirp, chirp. Yeah. And you know what? Because I'm so motivated for this topic, we're going to dive right in. I'm not going to spend a lot of time bantering around with you. I want to dive into this topic. Um, let me ask you to introduce it. How many of you have ever gone through a time of personal doubt about your faith? You've had honest questions, unanswerable questions, it would seem, and it caused you doubt. Or you've, how many have ever experienced feeling greatly intimidated by something perhaps a professor in the classroom said about your faith? You've experienced that and made it wondered if could it be so. Yeah, tonight we're going to talk about the topic, is it reasonable to believe? Is it reasonable? Well, you know that because you've seen the flyers all week long. And one of the things we struggle with sometimes is asking the question, can I have an authentic walk with Christ if I have doubts? If I have those nagging, unanswered questions that I don't know what to do with? Now, I know the reality of this because I have had my share of them. And 10 years ago, something very specifically happened in my life that really led to severe doubts. And that is uh, my son, Brett, was killed. This is his picture. Uh, Brett was a senior at IU, and he was in the Army National Guard, and his uh, unit was deployed to Afghanistan. And while there, in his eighth month of his deployment, out on a mission, he uh, went over a landmine, killed he and three other Indiana guardsmen pretty much instantly. That was the most difficult, painful time of my life. My son and I had a great relationship. Uh, he and I were really close. We enjoyed doing so many things together. Um, he was just an absolutely delightful son. And so after his death, as you can imagine, uh, that launched me into a two-year period of serious wrestling with the faith, uh, doubts, questions. And the obvious question being if I'd experienced the love of God up to that point for 35 years of my life, was convinced he was good and he cared about me, and all of a sudden I was faced with something in my life um, so painful that I'd never experienced before, and it launched me into a time of serious wrestling with God and his goodness and his existence. So I know what it is to deal with doubt, and that's what I want to go after tonight. Uh, let's talk about that. Let's talk about barriers to belief. Now, I, by the way, I'm, I'm speaking, I know, to perhaps two different types of people in this audience. Some of you here are already believers. Um, Others of you may be here and you're not sure what you believe yet and you're not sure if you believe the Christian worldview. And that's great because hopefully tonight might give you some thoughts to help you wrestle further with that in your own spiritual journey. I want to suggest this. There's different reasons uh, that are barriers to being able to believe. For some, it's emotional. And that is, uh, I've experienced 
a person experiences a pain in their life and they wrestle with, is God good and does he care? Uh, others, it's the intellect. They're honest intellectual questions about the faith. How do I know if it's really true? And it's, it's been said that the heart will not embrace, will not engage with what the mind cannot embrace. Uh, but for others, it's volitional. And that is, to give my life to Christ means he may change some things, and I don't want him to change them. I want to be in control, and therefore I cannot believe because I'll lose control. So there's different reasons that hinder us from believing. I was on a plane returning from a conference, and I was sitting beside a woman named Paula, and we began to talk, and she told me about her 16-year-old daughter who committed suicide. And we went on to discuss why, of course, that produced great doubt in her life. And she said, I asked my sister for what reasons she believed, and she was a Christian and actually works in a Christian ministry, and her sister said, well, I, I just believe. She offered no reasons for the faith. Well, I proceeded to have a two-hour conversation with her on the trip, laying out some of the reasons why I believe. First Peter 3.15 says this. Perhaps you've read this before. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. It's not a sufficient answer to say to someone, well, I just believe, as if what we're standing on is blind faith. There are solid reasons for what we believe. Now, those reasons can come in different categories. And I'm going to suggest three lines of evidence for our faith. One is experience. We've experienced Christ. We've seen Christ in other people's lives. Another line of evidence is reason. Are there solid philosophical, scientific reasons for why we believe? And the third is revelation, and I'll get to that later. Uh, now, when I speak about reason, tonight I want to talk about reason and revelation more than experience. So let's talk about reason. When I talk about reason, I'm talking about often it's called natural theology. That is, what I see in creation gives me a clue as to what God is like. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. That since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Paul is saying here that no one really has an excuse to say there isn't a God because I can look at creation and I can see how God has manifested who he is in creation. Psalm 119 talks about this as well. Now, so when we talk about natural theology, we're talking about reason. After my son was killed, one of the books that really helped me is called The Case for a Creator. You ever heard of any of the Lee Strobel books? The Case for a Creator? It's a fabulous book. Uh, Lee Strobel was, is an apologist, Yale graduate, uh, former legal editor for Chicago Tribune, a spiritual skeptic until 1981. In this book, he interviews leading scientists throughout the nation about why their reasons for believing there's an intelligent designer. I was reading this book, started to read this book after Brett died because I knew I had to bolster the intellectual credibility of my faith as I was going through this time of doubt. All right? So what I want to do tonight is I want to I share with you um, three evidences, if time allows, three reasons why I believe it is reasonable to believe that there is an intelligent designer. This is three out of 20 to 25. I've typed out my thorough list 
of over 25 reasons for why I believe. And I want to share with you just three, if time allows. And I don't want this to be a science class per se, but I'm going to get into a little bit of science, if that's okay. And my goal is intentionally to go after our intellects and our minds. Uh, Here's the first bit of evidence I want to dive into. It's called the first cause argument, which in philosophy is called the cosmological argument. Uh, On Guard is a book by Dr. William Lane Craig, one of the foremost philosophers in this generation, debates leading uh, leading atheists around the world, and he articulates this very well. But what it is, the first cause argument is simply this. Everything that begins has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause, had a cause, excuse me. So what he's arguing here is that one of the evidences we can rest on is the fact that there was a cause at the beginning of the universe. You say, what's the big deal about that? Well, when scientists began to articulate the theory of the Big Bang, in, uh, which began, of course, in 1929 with Edwin Hubble, as he was uh, talking about the velocity of the galaxies moving away from each other. And the theory of the, the Big Bang was articulated and is fairly clearly embraced by any, any scientist today. And for a lot of Christians, that was like, wow, the Big Bang, oh my, that rocks my faith. Not so. In fact, the Big Bang theory is a great boom to us in our faith because it's saying this. It's saying that the universe had a cause that there was a first cause. Now, the reason this is significant is scientists had maintained for years, including Einstein, that the universe was static, that the universe eternally existed, that the universe did not have a beginning. Even Einstein later said, when Big Bang Theory was, was embraced, that the biggest mistake of his career was trying to hold the idea of a static universe. Now, why do I say this? Uh, the two properties of the Big Bang Theory, or one is that a transcendent cosmic beginning a finite time ago, and secondly, that the universe is undergoing a general continued expansion. You know this from your science classes. Well, here's the amazing thing. That's, of course, exactly what the Scripture teaches when you read Genesis 1 and 2, but also in Isaiah and Job and other parts of the Scripture. For example, let me read with you uh, Isaiah chapter 42 verse 5 says this, He who created the heavens and stretched them out. The scripture itself, 2,500 years ago, talked about the fact that the universe had a beginning because God spoke heat and light into the universe and all that we know of the universe now, matter, time, and energy, began at that point when God spoke. And the scripture says he stretched them out, that he caused the beginning of the universe and it's been expanding ever since. Interesting Hebrew terminology. He stretched out the universe. Isaiah 42, 5, and also Isaiah 40, 22. So the Big Bang Theory is, is a wonderful thing for us to realize that science is now saying that we can no longer say the universe had no cause. It's always been here, but it had a cause, which means... How do we understand who the cause was behind the Big Bang? Uh, Paul Davies said this quote about the Big Bang Theory. Paul Davies is a physicist, cosmologist, astrobiologist, Arizona State University. And he said this, The most important scientific discovery of our age is that the physical universe 
did not always exist. It has forced the scientific community to come to grips with how do we explain the beginning of the universe. Now, people have tried to explain the beginning of the universe. Stephen Hawking, if you've heard of, how many have heard of Stephen Hawking? Stephen Hawking? Widely considered one of the greatest scientists of our generation. I've plowed through his, one of his most recent works called The Grand Design. And in it, he is trying to explain basically how the universe began uh, by purely natural processes. Here's his quote. This is directly from the book. After pouring through the whole book, he comes to this conclusion at the end. You ready? Because there is a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous generation is the reason there is something rather than nothing, why the universe exists, why we exist. Now, here's what he's saying through all his work in this book. He's saying that the universe created itself out of nothing. So in total nothingness, the universe somehow exploded into being by creating itself. Now, here's the deal. What Big Bang cosmologists have made it clear is true about this whole discovery is that science will never know what preceded the Big Bang. What caused the Big Bang is not a scientific question. It's a metaphysical question. It's answered by theology or philosophy. Science will never be able to answer that question because we can't proceed. We don't know what preceded the Big Bang. Now, it's kind of like saying this. The origin of the universe, and this is what's helped me. By the way, these are some of the things that most helped me walk through my darkest times of doubt. It's the origin of the universe. The theist is saying this, that the universe came into being out of nothing by someone. Where the atheist has to say the universe came into being out of nothing by no one. Now, which takes a greater faith? To say out of total nothingness, a universe sprang into existence but there was no matter, no material, no, no law of gravity existing in nothingness. Uh, another great book that I found really helpful is this one by Norm Geisler. It's called, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And the point is rather obvious from the book, isn't it? I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Sometimes I've wrestled in my own mind with, how could there possibly be a creator so great that he could speak a universe into existence. I said, that's just preposterous. How could there be? But then I say, but if not, then how do I explain where the universe came from? What is the first cause? How did the universe speak itself into existence? So this really helps me. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Now, by the way, I'm not uh, showing you all these books, expecting you to read them all. Uh, I wouldn't read them all because there's too many, but this is a good one. In fact, Corey said this was quite helpful in your faith. Was it not, bro? All right, so, yeah, Corey's shaking his head. He told me that in a way here. All right, so what am I saying? The first cause argument of philosophy is that the universe had a beginning, and we have to answer the question, what caused it, if not an intelligent being? All right, let's talk about the second argument. I hope, do you feel like you're in science class now? Is that a problem? You've been sitting in many science classes already? I don't want it to be that, but hopefully... These can be helpful. Here's the second line of evidence I want to look at under the topic of reason, and that is the design argument. Are you familiar with this? Anybody? It's called the te- in philosophy, it's called the teleological argument, which says this. 
The world we live in is too beautiful, too complex, too orderly, adaptive, and purposeful to have occurred randomly or accidentally. Or the idea of the teleological philosophical argument is that because there is design in the universe, it indicates there was a designer. Now, a simple illustration of this is, is Mount Rushmore. Right? We all know this. If I were to say to you, let me tell you how this came to be. Over hundreds of years of rain, wind, and erosion, this just appeared. What would you say to me? Uh, Hirsch, no. Doesn't make any sense. You're right. This obviously had a designer. Now, we use hundreds of illustrations like that. Anything designed indicates there was an intelligent designer. And that's what the philosophical argument is, a teleological argument. Now, I want to point out a couple things in the, in the design argument. Let's talk about design in life. Let's talk about spontaneous generation, which you're familiar with. You, you've learned us growing up. Spontaneous generation, the idea that life was generated spontaneously from non-living chemicals by natural laws without any intelligent intervention. Now, 100 years ago, this idea was embraced much more so because the cell was considered to be a very simple, uh, the cell was considered to be very simple. But now with the advanced technology we have, and now that we've been able to look deeply into the cell, we realize that the cell is immensely complex. Here's a picture, which we're not going to talk about, okay? All right, then you would go to sleep with me. All right, but what advanced scientific knowledge has shown us and technology has shown us is that the cell is incredibly complex and that DNA, uh, that DNA itself has incredible intelligence. And you understand that DNA is what contains the information uh, to order the sequencing of amino acids into proteins into a complex cell, right? Now, Frederick Hoyle, if you've heard that name, scientist from Cambridge, said this about the odds of the random formation of amino acids into proteins into a cell. And he said this, the chances of life originating by random ordering of organic molecules is not sensibly different from zero. That the odds of that taking place is 1 in 10 to 125th power. Now, numbers don't always do it, so he, get, he gives this illustration. For for non-intelligent chemicals to randomly organize themselves to become living is like a tornado blowing through a junkyard of old airplane parts and on the other on the other side of the tornado would come out a fully equipped ready to go 747 jet so that's the odds the same odds of life beginning without intelligence in the information to guide it this this uh, evidence was so convincing to a man named Anthony Flew. Have you ever heard of Anthony Flew? Probably not. He was one of the greatest philosophers of the previous generation. He was kind of like the Richard Dawkins of, that, of a generation ago. And, and Anthony Flew uh, argued and wrote 30 books arguing against the existence of God. But it was the incredible intelligence that we have now discovered in DNA that persuaded him and moved him from atheism to theism. He was one of the leading atheistic debaters in the previous generation. And he said this, Anthony Flew said this, I think the argument to intelligent design is enormously stronger than it was when I first met it. And now it seems to me that the finding of more than 50 years of DNA research have provided materials for a new and enormously powerful 
argument to design. This was the leading atheist a generation ago. Now, to my knowledge, he did not embrace Christ before his death. But the reason of the, the intelligence in DNA moved him toward a position of acknowledging there must have been an intelligent creator. All right? Bill Gates said this about uh, the DNA molecule. He says, DNA, this is Bill Gates, is like a software program, only much more complex than anything we've ever devised. And that's quite a statement from Bill Gates. That DNA is more complex than anything we have ever humanly created. And yet it is the, in that DNA that carries all the intelligence that orders and brings uh, a cell to a complex state of molecules. All right? Now, let's talk about design in the human body, and I want to be very brief with this because I can't cover as much as I have here. Let me just say this. Uh, one of the things that helps me is every time I walk into a doctor's office and I look at the, for example, when I go to my eye doctor and I look at the eye chart on the wall, I come away and say, oh my gosh, there's no way I can believe that came into being by simply evolving over millions of years of time without any intelligent guidance. When I think of uh, the human brain, you realize our brains, what incredible organs they are. Your brain, did you know this? And you're going to find this helpful. Your brain can store as much information as 20 million books. Did you know that? You said, geez, if I could just have some of that for my next exam, that would be great. Your brain can store 20 million books of information. Here's what Carl Sagan, if you remember Carl Sagan, he popularized uh, scientific work about the cosmos in a TV series uh, years ago, the Cornell prof, so forth. And he said this, the newer, the newer chemistry of the brain is such the circuitry of a machine more wonderful than any devised by humans. Carl Sagan is saying that the human brain is far greater than anything we have ever been able to design. And so the question is, how did the organs of our body achieve such incredible complexity if there wasn't any guiding intelligence to bring that to pass? Now, let's go on. I'll talk about some more. Let's talk about design in the universe briefly. Design in the universe is another example of design. Uh, how many have heard of the anthropic principle? You ever heard of the anthropic principle? I'm betting these are things you're not taught in your classrooms. The anthropic principle is this. The universe is a finely tuned and delicately balanced harmony of fundamental constants, anthropic constants. That is, that the universe exists and there is life in the universe because there is a precise interdependent environmental conditions which are set exactly perfectly right so that life can exist. Now, you know from any astronomy class that um, you've had in the past that when we think about our galaxy, it suggests that there's as many as 100 billion galaxies in the universe, if not more. Well, and in the Milky Way galaxy, scientists at latest suggest there's as many as 500 solar systems within just our galaxy. Now, here's the amazing thing. The anthropic principle says this, that we live on a planet, the planet Earth, that's situated in our solar system, and I think we have our picture. Next picture, if you could. The Earth is situated in what's called the habitable zone. And that is, the Earth that we live on 
is in the is in that place in our solar system, one of hundreds in this galaxy, one of 100 billion galaxies. And to our knowledge thus far, we know of life nowhere else except on planet Earth. And it's because of all these uh, anthropic constants that are perfectly tuned for life to be able to live. Now I'm talking about, when I talk about these constants, I'm talking about things like the electromagnetic force, the strong nuclear force, uh, eccentricity, gravity, and so forth. All these are so finely tuned. And if they were off by even one degree or a small percent, life could not exist on this planet. And we happen to live on the only planet thus far known to man that is able to maintain life. Now, how did that happen? Stephen Hawking's, in his book that I just talked to you about, said his conclusion, he talks about this anthropic principle. This is not a theistic idea. He says, well, it's just an amazing coincidence. And we are so fortunate that we happen to be on one of the planets that is able to sustain life. Paul Davies said this about this. And Paul Davies is a, a physics, astrophysicist, astrobiologist. He says this, there's for me more, there is for me powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned Nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. Now, I've only touched on this. And, and if you want to read about any of these, those who have this curiosity, this book I highly recommend, The Case for Creator, where he talks with leading scientists about this very thing. So I'm being so brief here. But I want you just to hear uh, that some of our leading scientists in our generation uh, would point us to scientific evidence and philosophical evidence that says it is reasonable to believe there's an intelligent designer that we are not here by random chance and nothing in natural processes. Now, the final bit of evidence I want to mention to you is what I call revelation. Remember I said experience, reason, and revelation. And here's what I mean by revelation, that God has revealed himself to us in Christ. Here's a little diagram. When the people of the world ask the question, does God exist and what is he like? As we've just been talking about, we can infer from the natural sciences and from philosophy by inference and use of our logic, there are many things that point us to the reasonableness there has to be an intelligent creator, designer. However, reason alone is not enough to get us to Jesus. Aristotle himself, when he talked about the attributes of of it, of the God that he believed in, they're attributes we can discern from science, all the things that we just talked about. But it takes revelation to get to the point of Jesus. And here's what I mean. Inference can only take me to the fact that God exists and he's an intelligent creator. What is he like? What is his character like? And that's where revelation comes in. Now, what are the sources of revelation? Well, creation, the Bible, and Jesus. We just talked about creation. And raises these questions, which we aren't going to touch on tonight, but we, you, something you want to think about sometimes is why do I believe the Bible clearly uh, gives a clear and accurate picture of what God is like? How do I know? And that begs the question, why is the Scriptures, why do the Old and New Testaments, why do we trust in them to give an accurate picture of what God is like compared to any other sacred Scriptures that have been written in other world religions? And so we need to answer that question, and that's another topic for another day. 
But what the Scripture does point us to, of course, is Jesus, right? And this is where the rubber meets the road, is that God said in order that we might know what he's like, he took on flesh, became a man, the incarnation, so that when Jesus walked the earth, the eyewitnesses of him, Peter, James, and Paul, and all the dudes, they looked at Jesus, and what they heard Jesus say is, if you see me, you see God. You know what God is like. And of course, this speaks to the question of, why do we say that Jesus is the only way? What is it about Jesus that makes him unique from any other religious teacher that has ever lived? And of course, the uniqueness of the life of Christ is that he made the claim that no other religious leader made. Jesus claimed that he was God in the flesh. He was the only one claimed that his death would provide forgiveness, that his life would provide eternal life. And the miracles that supported his claim to deity are what authenticated that he was who he claimed to be. Now, let me tell you where this was very real for me. When I stood at the gravesite of my son, who, as I said before, I just cherished in so many ways. When I would go to the gravesite, and I went a lot because I just longed to be with my son, and I would take my chair, lawn chair out there, and I'd sit and I'd read, and I'd, I'd talk to Brett. He never said much back to me, but I'd talk to him. But I'd be out there, and shearing pain was coursing through my, my, my being. Agony of soul that I had never experienced before. And in the agony of, the, of missing my son and looking down at the marker in the ground and realizing that my son's body was six feet under the ground, there it was in that box. And here's where the reality of what I had believed for 35 years up to that point really came home to me. Because what I realized was, oh my, if what I believed is true, if Jesus really rose from the grave, if he really conquered death, and he was the only one who has ever done that, if he did, then my son who believed in Jesus, then I will see him again. But if Jesus did not rise from the dead, if I'm believing a hoax or a farce or a fraud, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then my son is going to rot in that box, and he's in absolute nothingness, And the moment I die, I will go into absolute nothingness if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So it was at that moment my faith came so, became so much more, wow, this is where the rubber meets the road. And I had to go back and I had to pull out books and I had to start to read through again the evidence for why do I, why is it reasonable to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be and that he really rose from the dead? And of course, there are whole books written on that topic of evidence for how we can know Jesus really rose from the dead. Now, you know, for me, I wrestled wrestled through that for the next two years of my life after his death. And I had to come to the conclusion, am I going to stake my life on what the Scripture says about Jesus, or am I going to turn my back on it? Am I going to abandon the Christian worldview and say, I don't believe it, But of course, in doing so, I realized there was no other worldview that any better answered the most difficult questions of life. In fact, any honest atheist or pantheist or deist, if you press them on it, they will all admit to doubts because no worldview 100% answers all the questions of life to our complete satisfaction. So we have to make a decision, which one is most reasonable to stake my life on? 
And I had to come full circle in my faith and say, you know what? I'm going to make the decision. I will stake my life on what the Scripture says revealed about Jesus, that he was indeed the Son of God, that he indeed rose from the dead. Now, I had experienced him changing my life. So I had plenty of experience that told me God was good, that he loved me, because he changed my life, and he changed every, so many other people I know. So the experience told me this was true. But I needed to walk through these reasons of intellect to, to reassure myself, this is true, and I will stake my life on this the rest of my life, that Jesus really rose from the dead. Now, um, let me end with this. I'm going to show you two quotes to end. Two quotes to end. The implications of the worldview that you embrace are significant, hugely significant. Let me show you this from Bertrand Russell, if you've heard of him. Philosophical naturalist in 1800, late 1800s, early 19, through 1970. He said this, if you embrace an atheistic philosophical worldview, here's what it means. Here's the implication. You are the product of causes that have no purpose or meaning. Your origin, your growth, your hopes, your fears, your loves, beliefs are the outcome of accidental collections of atoms. No fire, heroism, intensity of thought or feeling can preserve your life from beyond the grave. All the devotion, all the inspiration, all the labor of all the ages are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. The whole temple of human achievement must inevitably be buried in the debris of a universe in ruins. That's what we're all headed for. Nice, huh? That's If an atheist or philosophical naturalist really is consistent in holding his worldview, he's living a meaningless life with no purpose because we're just a collection of random molecules. Now, the Christian worldview says this as to the meaning of life. The Christian, a Christian theism says you are the uniquely designed creation of a thoroughly good and unspeakably creative God. You are made in his image with the capacity to reason, choose, and love that sets you above all other life forms. You will not only survive death, but you yourself were made to bear an eternal weight of glory you cannot now know, even fathom, and you will one day know. Those are the implications of the worldview that you will embrace. Now, I want to close. I'm going to close in prayer, and then the band is going to come up and lead us in some songs. But here's, I want to, I want to offer something to you. Uh, tomorrow, I'm going to hang around on campus. I'm going to plant myself, Corey said, over in the atrium. Coolest place on campus, that's what I've been told. And I am happy to hang and meet with anybody who'd like to meet and just interact on some of the things I said. Especially tonight, if you're here and you're not sure what you believe, if you've got serious doubts, you're seeking, you're not sure you, you believe, I would love to walk through and wrestle, wrestle through those questions with you if you'd like to. I can also meet with others as well, but I especially want to be available uh, to interact with you on those questions. I, I've shared so briefly tonight about reasons why it's reasonable, and I have 25 other ones. I guess we could go on a little longer till midnight or something, and I could cover the other 25. Now, let's close in prayer. And uh, let me just pray with you and for you. Lord, tonight I, I thank you for this opportunity to be here. And I thank you for uh, those who are here that already believe. And I trust that these things that I've talked through might help them realize their faith is rooted in sound evidence, in science and philosophy, that we are not a bunch of dummies who just live by blind faith. And I pray, Lord, for those who might be seeking tonight, those who are not sure what they believe and have honest, 
questions and doubts. Lord, I pray these things tonight would help them process and think through the reasonableness of the faith. Thank you, Jesus, that you revealed yourself to us and that in you we can really know what God is like and that, Jesus, we can actually know you and relate to you. Thank you, Lord. I pray this and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, as I leave, on these blue cards that you filled out, if you got a question in the back or you want to talk with someone about some of the things said tonight, you can indicate that on there and talk with other people beside myself in the next days ahead. Okay? We're going to go into a time of worship.